So let's pray. God, we are grateful. And we are humbled to be a part of a community that is wrestling with a a very difficult piece of scripture. It's causing us to have questions. It's causing us to wonder. It's causing us to rethink. It's causing us to look at our lives, not as not just as individuals, but as um, as a community. Different. It's causing us to reflect on our world and our moment in history. It's causing us to hope in new ways and in different ways. And it's hard. So God, as as we start this conversation up again, would you give us the the grace and the, the, the peace to to just honestly hear from you this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so we've been in this conversation. Hi, Holly. We've been in this conversation. I just opened my eyes and there's Holly. Um, We've been in this conversation around this crazy book of Revelation. And it's been... Um, just been a, a wonderful time of hearing your questions. A few weeks back, we had a little talkback group, and there were some great questions there. Um, I've been trying to answer some of the questions as we go, kind of over our um, anonymous question line. And if you have more of those um, questions, we'd love to hear those. Um, there should be a link on our resource page where you can submit your questions. But one of the questions was um, around this idea, I know it's a big word, but this idea of dispensationalism. And you guys are like, this is too early in the morning to have big words. We're doing it. Thanks, Eric. Permission granted. So um, there is a way of reading scripture called dispensationalism. And think about it in these terms. It's It's a way of bucketing different parts of Scripture um, as if God is dispensing, okay, there's that word, um, dispensing different things, or or, or God is dispensing different um, uh, ways to um, relate to His people through different time, okay? And these different dispensations are weighted differently. And, and I won't get into all of it because it's just, it would be a, like a series of lectures that you don't feel like having. But one of the ways that dispensational reading of Scripture has influenced us, and I mean all of us, is how Revelation is read. Okay? Now, the reason why I say this is because the way of reading scripture like that started in the 19th century. It isn't the historical reading of scripture. And it started in a very excitable, sensational revival moment in Ireland. And there was a prophetic word, and if you're not familiar with with that language, uh, someone had, in a sense, a, 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 what they felt was a word from the Lord that they needed to share with everybody else. And it had to do with this idea of a rapture, of, of God's people being taken away. And it was such a powerful meeting that people began to look at Scripture differently. And they waited, especially chapter 6 through 16 in Revelation, very literally and very much uh, something that followers of Jesus would avoid. Now, we, we can all disagree and agree on different things, on how to read things, but what happened was, and, and not all of this is bad in the sense of 
Uh, we don't want to be caught sleeping on what we're called to do as followers of Jesus, okay? So, um, there was, it took root with a guy named John Nelson Darby who brought it to the United States. In Great Britain and, and, and the United Kingdom, they don't think this way. They don't have this understanding of revelation like we do. Um, us Americans are really good at taking stuff and really running with it. And so John Nelson, John Nelson Darby took it. And since he was, he was very gregarious and, and very sensational and creative and had a lot of like influence, he uh, trained another guy on how to read this. Um, and then that guy trained another guy and it became really, um, it, it kind of like shot out to the whole church through something called the Schofield Reference Bible. And that was the first ever study Bible. Does anybody have a study Bible? Yeah. So study Bibles are handy because there are some notes, some commentary notes in the margins. What's really important for you to understand is those are not the Bible. <laughs> the notes are not the scriptures. So, when you would read Revelation with the Schofield Reference Bible, there was, it would tell you exactly what everything was, which was nice, you know? I mean, you, we all want to know what things are. Problem is, is, those weren't things they were supposed to be. And so, it created this uh, way of reading Revelation that um, made it very fearful, very scary, and this became the dominant way by which a lot of seminaries and pastors, how pastors were trained for like a couple generations. And so this is the longest lasting piece of dispensationalism. And the way we read scripture, a lot of people have gone away from dispensationalism, but the longest lasting piece is the reading of Revelation which leans heavy on a literal translation of chapters we're about to get into. And the reason why I'm saying this today is because next week we get into one of those chapters. And the next three weeks we're going to be in basically uh, chapter 6, and it, it is three major themes that we're going to carry through the rest of the book. So the reason why I say that is what we think when we think about the future of what God is up to, changes how we live in the present. And my heart on all of this, you guys, is not to be mean or arrogant or anything like that. I mean, I grew up with, you know, my Christian schooling background was very much in this dispensational reading of Revelation. But my heart is for us to be mindful of the things that we're called to focus on. And um, we'll get into rapture and all of these things down the road. And here's the thing. It's totally fine if you disagree. The point of all of this is get us to think about our lives in terms of our fidelity, to our faithfulness to Remember, this book is a letter. We talked about it's a letter to actual churches. Um, it's apocalyptic, meaning it's a genre of literature that actually has rich symbolism all throughout it. And it's meant to call imagination to things um, in our world and in their world. And it wasn't written for them to, uh, to hear it read and then be confused. It was written for them because they would have understood what the meaning was. The problem is, is we have kind of shifted the meanings. And then it's prophetic. And uh, this is just a little quick recap. Um, Old Testament prophecy is almost always about calling the people of God to faithfulness in their moment because of what God is about to do. It's not predictive. 
It's a warning to remain faithful, okay? So I just wanted to set that up because where we're going today is super fun. And um, I've been nerding out. We've been doing some history. We've been doing some Old Testament. Today we're going back to some history because both of those things are what carries the book. The book has 400 plus illustri- uh, like allusions to the Old Testament and a ton of imagery and allusions to what the people were experiencing in their actual moment. And if we miss both of those, we actually miss the meaning behind what was intended. You guys with me? Cool. Because let's talk about Domitian. Super fun, right? You guys were like, oh man, I hope I get to have some history lesson stuff. Um, I want to show you a picture of a sculpture of Domitian. Handsome fella, right? This is an actual sculpture of the emperor Domitian that has been preserved. It's in some museum somewhere. And it's got part of his hand and part of his, <laughs> part of his face. And um, Domitian was in power as the emperor of Rome from 81 to 96 AD. 15 years he was in power. He was the youngest son of Vespasian. He was the brother, brother of Titus. Vespasian ruled, and then his older brother Titus ruled, and then he ruled. And so combined, this family ruled for 30 years in Rome. Okay? And that's a big deal. Because right before them, ruling was like this year or two of like four emperors. And it was kind of crazy and chaotic and unstable. Now Vespasian was, I'm sorry, um, Domitian was a very capable administrative emperor. He finished the Roman Colosseum. My mic's gone. There it is. Has anybody ever seen the Roman Colosseum in person? Yeah. You could be prouder than that. I mean, your hand can go higher than your head. There we go. Fantastic. So Vespasian, I mean, sorry, Domitian finished it. The military loved him. He cared for the military. I mean, he knew what, you know, in a sense, scratched his back as a leader was the power behind him was the military. And so he, he threw them a lot of love. The people loved Vespasian. We're going to find out why here in a second, but the people loved him. But the Senate, a little bit, for the last three years of his reign was called the reign of terror. He became fearful and suspicious, okay? And he executed a lot of people. He executed um, the governor of Asia. He executed his own cousin. He executed a child actor that looked like someone who didn't like him. (laughs) He even killed some of the senators in the Senate. He had them killed. Now, he was not popular towards the end of his reign, especially with the Senate. Um, But I want to show you this next picture. It's a statue of him holding what? A scroll. And... oh. The only point that I want to make, perhaps we're going to meet a, someone who's going to hold a scroll here in Revelation 5 in his right hand as well. And this is really important for us because a scroll, to hold a scroll, there's a reason why there's a statue of Domitian holding a scroll. Because to hold a scroll and the whole idea of a scroll is a scroll was the symbol of rulership that said that you claimed the authority and the power, and this is really big, over the way human history should go. I mean, think about that. 
You had the power to shape human history. Now, we see that and we're like, it's a stupid scroll. Not a big deal. It's a piece of paper. But they saw it as somebody who had the power to shape the way history went. All right? So, remember, two weeks ago, we talked about Julius Caesar, Octavian, and we went through all the Caesars, and you were super bored. But we talked about how imperial of Caesar grew as time went on. Things do. And we get to Domitian, and he claimed to be called Lord and God. He wanted people to deify him as he was alive, not when he died. All right? So it grew gradually through the empires, but it climaxed under Domitian. So, and here's the crazy part. Domitian's son dies. His young son dies. And it's like, wait a second, God's son dies? Right? The son of God shouldn't die. So there was propaganda that was created around the death of Domitian's son. And it's like spin and talking points that we see in politics all the time, right? And so what you would do if you wanted to create propaganda to explain something, you would use a coin. I'm going to throw a coin up here. This is the coin that was minted in honor of Domitian's son who died. And this is crazy. Coins were always propaganda, so were inscriptions and statues, but the son, his son, is seated like Apollo over the world. And he's got seven stars. Does anybody recognize the language of seven stars in the right hand from Revelation? Anybody? <laughs> and so we've got this image, like, and I'm just, I'm so nerded out by this. Because John was very aware of all this stuff floating around. John was very aware of the fact that there's this wild... Um, wait till we get further. <laughs> if you need caffeine at any time, just get up, go get it. We're in it. All right? So let's go to Ephesus. There was a temple to be built in Ephesus, which was the third imperial temple of Ephesus. Remember, there was these seven cities. They were all fighting and stumbling over each other to honor the emperor. Because they had all kind of, this whole thing had kind of grouped against the emperor way back when Octavian was in a civil war. But they were all trying to fall over each other because there was honor in honoring the empire, meaning the empire, emperor would give you special status as a city. And Ephesus won the race of becoming the first to have an imperial temple to Domitian. And what we see here, this is the crazy part. You see all those little windows down below? They would put all the statues of all the different gods. Okay? But the statue at the top is Domitian. And they did this symbolically to say that Domitian is standing over the gods and the goddesses. He's the father of gods. Do you think Domitian had some self-esteem in his life? Yes, he did. And everybody else fanned it, right? And then Ephesus became this world headquarters of Domitian worship. And here's the remains of the temple in Ephesus. This is the Domitian temple in Ephesus today. Now, understand that for Domitian, the worship of him was cent central to his self-understanding. Like it informed a lot of what he did. And so there's writings and inscriptions, and he really intensified this worship to the emperor. And so when we go to Ephesus, which is dominated, obviously, by Domitian worship, um, there is some 
crazy stuff that happens in Ephesus. And we're actually going to go, I don't know if there's a quote. If there's not a quote between, no, that's okay. At his temple in Ephesus, here it is. Priests prostrated themselves before the emperor's image. Individual priests dressed in white with wreaths on their heads. It should say cast ears of corn into censors and approached to the altars of their cities with sacrificial bowls. Music of flutes and harps overwhelmed the senses. Smoke filled the temple. So think about it. It's kind of like our modern worship services with smoke. You know what I mean? Right? Anybody with Like, There's just like there was an event, right? It was just like a, it was a big deal. And here's the crazy thing. All oh, this gets so fun. Oh, I'm sweating. Once a year, there was a special event. Okay, by the way, just so you know, we are going to have 5 shortly, and we're going to have some anticipation, okay? So, once a year, there was a special event. Domitian had a 35-foot statue that would be presented with representatives, and it would be presented, and it would come, it would, this is nuts, it would come out of the sea. In Ephesus, they would, they would have ropes and, and slaves and different people, and they would push, it would be submerged in the harbor, and they would push it out of the harbor. And it would go down the main street in Ephesus. And we're going to meet the image of a beast coming out of the sea. Now, you're crazy. I just think it's kind of cool. And, Demis, and so they had this, and it would come out on the emperor's birthday, and dignitaries and officials would all be dressed in white, and they would throw their crowns down at the statue. And the statue would be rolled out in the street, and all the people present would pay homage to it, and they would say in a loud voice, I think this is up here, our, our Lord, our God, you alone are worthy of praise and honor and power. <laughs> that sounds like a hymn. And that phrase we will read in a little bit. And once established the temple, you know, once he established the temple in Ephesus, he started something called the Domitian Games, which was like the Olympics. And there would be a lot of athletic contests. And here's the thing, though. They have statues with um, pictures and carved, like, relief around the statues kind of explained how these... And the reliefs show that the emperor would be in an imperial box and he would be carrying the wreath of victory in his right hand and there would be all this acclamations of the people and they were supported by, and, and, and the, this, one of the scholars says, rhythmic liturgical songs and instruments and singers. Pretty cool. The emperor is shown enthroned in the imperial box on another relief, and in his right hand, he's holding a scroll. Conquered barbarians would prostrate themselves before him and give them offering, give him offerings, and they would sing victory hymns, and assembled masses would sing, and it was just crazy, it was ceremonial, it was beautiful. You remember the beginning of the Olympics is really cool, like we do this still, it's kind of fun. Um, the hand with the scroll is resting on his lap in one relief. Um, and then there's another relief that shows the beginning of the games, which had a white, red, green, and blue horse starting off the first race. The most important thing, okay, this is, this is where the nerdery kind of comes to a head. There's more nerdery, but this is the center of the whole thing. Okay, keep this image in your head. Was the emperor with a written scroll in his right hand? Um, there was tons of imagery here, bowls of incense. The emperor typically employed, like there was like a shallow bowl, and they would pour libations into it. Um, 
this is also cool. Domitian also, he ordered a crowd of 24 eunuchs to follow him wearing white. Now, if you don't know what a eunuch is, ask the person to your left. Um, And they were wearing white robes, and they had gold wreaths on their heads, and they were told to sing, worthy, I think we have this, worthy is Caesar and most worthy to be praised. I mean, think about this, like, on and on and on. One of the most famous places in all of Ephesus. Has anybody been to Ephesus? Anybody? Higher hands. That's a really cool thing. <laughs> um, there was a place called the Agora. And it's mentioned in the New Testament. And the Agora is a huge market. I mean, think of Mall of America right? But mall of the world, right? This was like the market of markets. And buying and selling, remember Ephesus is the center of Domitian worship. Buying and selling in the Agora uh, was, there was a letter basically, um, to backtrack, there's a letter from Domitian's own hand that talks about the the necessity of a permit to buy and sell. And in order to buy and sell, you needed a certificate. And there were people coming from all over the world to buy and sell. So whether you were a Roman citizen or not, you had to have this certificate. And buyers and sellers from all over the world, he wanted them to pay him worship so that they could do economic work. And once a year, if you're a good Roman citizen, you were required to take a pinch of incense and burn it on the altar Uh, of the Godhead of Caesar. And when you did this, you were given a certificate stating that you had performed your religious and political duty. Okay, hang in there. We're almost done with the nerdery. But here's an example of the certificate. To those who have been appointed to preside over the sacrifices. So this is somebody asking for permission to get validation. And this is from Inares Acuus, from the village of Theo, that village, together with his children, Aias and Hera, who reside in the village of Theodelphia. We have always sacrificed to the gods, and now in your presence, according to the regulations, we have sacrificed and offer libations and tasted the sacred things. And we ask you give us a certification that we have done so. May you farewell. And here's the certificate they receive. We, the representatives of the emperor, Cernos and Hermas, have seen you sacrificing. So we're not sure on this. I'm not going to make any claims. Only speculation, but maybe this is the mark we read about in Revelation. I don't know. Here are some examples of some songs sung to Domitian. I know you guys were dying for this part. Nope. (laughs) Uh, Domitian, this is from uh, Suetonius. Domitian loved to hear at the state banquet of the Festival of the Seven Hills the cry Hail to the Lord. The poets cried out, Lord of lords, highest of the high, Lord of the earth, God of all things. And then Suetonius um, tells us that there were imperial letters dictated by Domitian himself, and they began with the words, the Lord our God commands, or edict of the Lord our God, or the words of the emperor, son of Vespasian, Domitian, the worshipful. (laughs) Yeah. He even made his wife call him Lord and Master. Yeah. I don't even, I'm not even looking at you, Angela, right now. I'm not even looking. This the hymn they found sung to Domitian. If you guys think this isn't making sense yet, just wait. Hang in there. Great are you, our Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive honor, power, and glory. Worthy are you, Lord of the earth, to inherit the kingdom. 
Lord of lords, highest of the high, Lord of the earth, God of all things, Lord God and Savior for eternity. Okay. Did Domitian have an ego? A little bit. But it got fed. That back got scratched by the people. What happened to him? Eventually, Domitian was assassinated by the Senate. Turns out when you start killing everybody else, they figure out a way to get rid of you. He was loved by the people in the army, but because he was so hated by the Roman Senate, they, they actually have a ceremony called the Ceremony of Condemnation. And they took every reference to Domitian. There's an inscription we're going to show you. It's kind of cool. Maybe. There it is. See those spots carved out? That was Domitian. They like went around and just chiseled his name out of stuff. Now I want to transition us to Revelation 5. Okay? Now I want, before we do that, I want us to hear, I want us to feel, okay, what it must have been like for these house churches. I mean, think about being in Ephesus, and you're a house church in Ephesus, and within 15 years' time, the intensity of the worship of Domitian just cranks up. And you have to start doing the pinch and the altar. And you have to start doing all these things. And you have to come out of your house when the parade goes out in front. And you have to... And you're a small house church. And you're politically really vulnerable. And, and just so you know, Christianity, the following... Jesus was kind of under the umbrella of Judaism in the empire, in the sense that in Rome, like, they were cool with uh, Jews worshiping how they worshiped so long as they just didn't interfere. But everybody else had to worship the pantheon of gods, and then they could worship anybody else they choose. The thing about Christianity was kind of like shielded by this umbrella of Judaism until this time. And it became more and more clear that these Christian followers, these, these Christ followers, the followers of the way were not worshiping the emperor. And so there was more intensity, um, and you were just surrounded by this, and you was heard word that somebody was killed because of their lack of worship of the emperor. So how are you going to handle all this? And you're sitting there, and you're in this, and it's just heavy all around you, and you get this letter from John. And I just want us to read it with that background. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Okay. Uh, we had a throne scene a number of weeks back that was just un... It was it's big and wow, right? And the, they hear all this, and then they hear about someone sitting on the throne. And the scroll wasn't just any scroll. It had seven seals to it. What's seven? Completion, perfection, fullness. So this scroll was not like just any other scroll. It was like the scroll of it had writing on both sides of it, not just on one side. It had everything. And what is a scroll? It is the power and the authority to set human history. And somebody is sitting on the throne with the scroll of scrolls, okay? And the, the lamb ultimately sets, it's kind of like this idea that the lamb ultimately sets the course of human history, but we're going to get to that here in a second. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, by the way, we did this passage last week, so if you're like, wait a second, didn't we do this last week? Yes, we're just doing it twice. 
the end. Um, then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Um, there's that word worthy. We heard that in some Domitian worship songs. But no one in heaven on, or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Um, many believe, scholarly people, that this is a direct reference to the emperor Domitian. Like John is so punk rock right here. Like he is like, I think that's awesome. I love it personally. And it says, verse four, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside or even look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. And we introduced what's coming next last week. It says, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, the root of David, Isaiah has triumphed. In both those texts, we talked about being very militaristic images of conquering and victory. Um, so remember, he hears about the Lion of Judah, and then he sees something else. It says, he is able to open the scroll, and it's seven seals. Verse 6, then I saw a lamb. So he hears the Lion of Judah, sees a lamb, Okay, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns. Now, horns mean power. It's just an ancient thing on the road, but it means power. And seven eyes, and the idea behind this is wisdom and understanding which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the throne, uh, before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people, which is a contrast to the libations, right? And the prayers are kind of in contrast here. Verse 9 and they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And, your blood you, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be... You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. This is Exodus 19. And they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. 10,000 was the highest number you could write in Greek. So the image here is... Highest number you could write in Greek times the highest number you can write in Greek. So when you were a kid and you were like, that's the idea here. It's like saying this is a big number. They encircled the throne, the living creatures and the elders. In the loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Then this is, this is straight out of the Caesar hymnal coming up. To receive power and wealth and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Okay. Remember, you're a tiny house. You feel, you feel outnumbered. You feel like a very tiny minority. You feel totally alone. Let me ask you this. Do you ever feel like you're the only one that follows Jesus sometimes? You feel alone. You feel like you could get squashed at any time if you're this tiny. You hear this. You hear that you're not alone. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, <laughs> just like every creature saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. <laughs> Man, that would be nuts to be in that little house church and you hear this. You feel like you're about to get stepped on. And you are not alone. Every creature 
in the world above and below and is about to call out to God. Now, I'm just going to throw this out there. This is the audience participation time. How does that hit you? Put yourself in their shoes. How would that hit you? <laughs> You're feeling that before. You're feeling like we're going to get it. Right. How would it hit you to hear these words from John? Suddenly we're on a bigger team. Yeah. It's like the momentum it, right? Like if you ever watch a sporting event and you're just, oh, momentum. You ever felt that in your life? This is a warm and fuzzy piece of devotional material. This is like life-defining stuff. And the big point I want you to hear today is the one they were sure was losing is actually winning. And when we read something like this, we make, we're just going to make the same point as we did two weeks ago. It's important for us today to think about where we fall because worship is actually very political. And some of you are like, Ryan, you're not supposed to talk about politics. <laughs> this is written to make sure that they knew that they could only worship one. Right? That the empire was full of people who worshipped other gods just as long as you worshipped Caesar first. But John is using this language of Caesar and applying it to Jesus in order to keep them from succumbing to the idea that they were able to worship both Caesar and Jesus. And for them, the claim Jesus as Lord is not about them feeling warmth in their heart. It was a claim, of, it was a claim that just kind of it kind of pushed back at this false pretense that power and history and the shaping of history came from the Roman Empire, but instead came from a slaughtered lamb. And when we hear the word worship, a lot of us think of um, some of the songs we sing, that time in our gathering where we sing, And some of us leave going, man, worship was good, you know, or whatever, or I didn't know that song. Revelation is a war of worship. And in the book, the literature highlights, if you were to read the whole thing in one say, I would encourage you to do it, it highlights that 10 times you're invited to bow down to the Lamb. And 11 times you're invited to bow down to the dragon and the beast and the image of the beast. And we're going to get into the dragon and the beast. We're going to get in next week. We're going to talk about the We're going to talk about Babylon. We're going to talk about all these things. But the whole point behind it is that this was treasonous. This, they were hearing something. And at the same time, so excited and so overwhelmed with, like, we're not alone and there's hope. And yet, oh my gosh, shut the window, right? And when we think of politics in our day and age, what do we think of? This is more audience participation, just so you know. When we think of politics, some of you are like, here we go again. What do we think of? People screaming at each other. Yeah, what's that? Shut the window. <laughs> Shut the window, right? What else do we think of? Chaos. Chaos. Division. Division. Deceit. Deceit. Propaganda. Power. Donkeys and elephants. <laughs> Red and blue. We also think of this, and this is, we think of the way things get done, right? I mean, isn't that the whole mantra? That is how we, 
We conquer the world through how we do things. And politics, even in our day and age, is the power and the authority to set the future. Scroll language, right? That's what politics is. We think of two parties. And many of us, has been, we've been discipled to think fidelity to God is actually equated to fidelity to a way of power and getting things done. And we're so immersed. You, we're all immersed in this donkey elephant politics. <laughs> and we tend to start making allegiances. Some of you are like, why are you talking about this? Because revelation confronts our hearts. And it, it confronts our hearts in a really important way. Now, we are going to sing. I, there's not too many times in, in my life as a pastor that I go to Trent and I say, hey, Trent, you got to sing this song. But I did that. And the reason why in this song, you may not like it, that's okay, they're going to do a great job with it, but it's a song that confronts our hearts, and it's, and it's we and us language. And it confronts our hearts about kind of what the kingdom of God, what following the slaughtered lamb is all about. See, the politics of the lamb cannot be captured in a donkey or an elephant. Sorry to bother you with that. The politics of the lamb are forgiveness and reconciliation, and shalom-seeking, and great, here's the thing, great, have your opinion. I want you to have your opinion. You can have your opinion. We live in a place where we can have those. But what is our identity? We're slain lamb people. And I have my opinions. Guys, I have my opinions. I'm going to just throw it real basic. I have my opinions on Prop HH. Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's okay. But my opinion's right. <laughs> Yours too. But I have fidelity to a slain lamb who holds the authority and the power of history will go. And hundreds of times in the New Testament, Paul and other writers tell, tell me and us that I am in Christ. What does that mean, audience participation? What does it mean to be in Christ? Throw it out there. Good answers. Any answers? Born again. Born again, okay. Born new. Your new creation, right? Yeah, in Christ. What else are we? Die to ourselves. ourselves. Community? Community? Yeah. We're part of a new family, and we don't get to pick it. Whether you agree with my prop HH or not. Don't ask me my opinion on Prop HH later. This is not an invitation for that. I'm just making a point. We come to the table to share a meal together that shows the world our ultimate identity. That we are slain lamb people. And when we make this book about the rapture and about missing hard times and missing out on suffering and not having to endure in our allegiance to Jesus, I don't know. Now, here's the deal. Am I an expert? No, guys, no. (laughs) I'm a student of Jesus in a community of students of Jesus. And you are free to disagree. And my only hope is that these conversations around the book of Revelation would provoke us and to let it speak truth into us and keep us from looking for it to support the ways we're already thinking. So you're going to come to the table. We're going to come to the table. And I'm going to invite the worship team up. And here's the plan. You don't have to race right up here. You get time to let this kind of sink in and reflect. In fact, I would love for you to spend this first song just hearing the lyrics, 
letting them hit you, participate. Because I absolutely believe that God wants us to be the kind of community that wrestles this kind of worship out of us. The worship that we tend to like step into in our culture, in our day and age. To be a community of shalom, a community of peace, a community that believes that God is ultimately the one who sets human history. And there's hope in that. And there's beauty in that. So let me pray. Jesus, we come to the table... And we so often forget what it means to be in Christ, in you. We are adopted. We are rescued. That you broke the power of death. That you are victorious over all the things that burden us and the stuff that trips us up. I believe, God, that you gave this letter to these churches and threw them to us. We reflect right now on the places in our lives that we have let our worship drift. Where we've attached our worship to ways in which we think the world should operate. or people we think can get the world to operate the way we want it to. They're not worthy to open the scroll. So Jesus, we come to the table remembering your blood shed for us and your body broken for us that we would become slain lamb people. Amen.